Good day, and welcome back to another episode of the Marix Espresso. I wanted to start out by thanking everyone for the support, for downloading, sharing, and subscribing to our last podcast. We had hundreds of downloads across 30 countries and received such great feedback. Next up is a discussion with someone with over 15 years of experience in the commodity research, starting out at The Economist, moving on to Macquarie Bank, where she was Head of Agricultural Commodity Research and now Head of Research at EDF Bank. Kona Hack, welcome to the Marriott Espresso. Thank you for joining us on this topical episode on inflation. We're delighted to have you on board for this inflammatory inflation discussion. I think that's my entire vocabulary used in one sentence there. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Max, and I really like your intro. <laughs> thank you. Um, so the first point is, is why are we having this discussion now? What is it about this time frame that seems to be, uh, seems to be drawing us out? I mean, internally, we, we have developed the, uh, the, the uh, Marix system called Nowcast, and uh, we, we look at millions of blogs and social media posts to pick out trending words. And you know, we've looked at inflation since January, and, and this topic especially has exploded. Um, what is it that, that's causing this, do you think? No, it's, um, it is, you're right, it's absolutely become very topical. And I think there are good reasons for it. Um, number one, we've come, we're coming through, should I say, one of the most severe and deepest and most shocking of recessions I think the world has ever been through. Um, expectations across the markets and investors alike are that the rebound will be pretty strong, so pretty sharp rebound in the economy. And with that, obviously, you get huge demand. So what's happened? If you think about the lockdown and um, across the world, a lot of people have been um, unable to do their normal activities. So apart from the people who unfortunately lost their jobs, um, other people have not been spending as much. So there's a lot of pent-up savings that is waiting to be spent, if you like, once lockdown is lifted. Add to that huge um, government spending, so fiscal policy policy is very generous right now. We still have record low interest rates across most central banks across most of the world. Um, and you have basically a very easy monetary policy and very um, stimulative, stimulative um, economic background, which all suggests that when the rebound comes, there will be a huge demand push and if the supply side then for economic goods isn't able to match that, realistically what ends up happening is you get huge inflationary pressures. So we all know that because we deal with commodities, it's all about supply demand. But when you look at the broader picture in a global macroeconomic term, um, the expectation is that pent up demand post recovery will be huge and you will essentially um, be, there'll be a lot of demand chasing probably insufficient supply. So because there's so much money flowing around and the latest um, uh, bailout package by Joe Biden in the US, he's just approved a $1 trillion package. You know, in the US, people are getting, as we speak, $1,400 um, checks. And this is just going to be spent. And um, I think that is being considered as highly inflationary, that on top of a strong economic rebound. 
That's very interesting. I, I, I heard that somewhere. This is the highest saving rate in the U.S. since World War II. I mean, that is a phenomenal figure. And, uh, and it's so interesting looking at the gears of change and, and, and that slight mismatch that can occur between you know, the new demand coming out and the availability supply and the friction that, if, that, that exists in transferring the kind of abundant resources to the in-demand resources and making them match. I, I guess it's, um, it, it looks like a, a very, very tight period ahead of us. So what is, what is different this time uh, in terms of the inflationary theory as opposed to what happened in 2008. I mean, I remember this when I was graduating from university in 2009 into probably one of the worst financial crises in history, um, thinking that inflation surely must catch on. I mean, at the time, the governments were pumping billions to support the global financial systems. And me with my student loan check, I went and bought some gold futures and paid the price heavily for it. I think I probably, probably bought the high. Um, so what is different this time that, that we haven't seen beforehand? Why is this time different? Well, you know, we haven't had inflation for, for many decades. Um, you mentioned the 2008-2009 um, government stimulus, which in theory could have been inflationary. But I just want to get back to the previous time when we actually had inflation. So that would have been in the 1970s and 1980s. The government policies back then was very Keynesian, very... Um, fiscal-oriented, high amounts of fiscal spending, and, and that's the way things were done. Then you had the initial oil spike in 1973 when the um, Arab producers were withholding oils. Um, that then led to a wage price spiral. So the cost of production was going up because of oil. Um, and then the, the unions, the labor unions, if you like, were very strong in ensuring that that cost of that life increasing costs was going to then translate into higher wages. And then you had the spiral upwards, which led to overall inflation. Then in the 1980s, you ended up with a demand push, which exacerbated the whole thing um, with very strong economic booms and strong demand and everything, just consumer demand then pushed things up. So that was what you had. You haven't had something like that since at least 20, 30 years now. Why? So a few things have happened. Um, government tax have changed. They're not as fiscal oriented, number one. Number two, productivity seems to have changed. The labor unions are not as strong. The labor, if you like, is not as tight. You've had this globalization where the cost of labor has gone down. Arguably today, what you're seeing is huge amounts of technology, which is also allowing the cost of labor to stay low. Um, so what happened in 2008? So back to your original question. Yes, there was huge amounts of um, easy money, flowing around the world. But a lot of that ended up in the banks, with the banks shoring up their capital reserves. Um, if you remember, it was all about the credit crunch then. So the banks were not transferring those, those cheap money to the broader public through cheap credit. Um, and they were, if anything, they were using it to shore up their own balance sheets. So Joe Blogs on the street was not benefiting, benefiting from that easy money. And as a result, there was not this feeling of new wealth or richness um, which you can go out and spend. So you actually ended up with significantly below average inflation throughout the 2010s, you know, up until most recently, that's continued to be the case. 
this is why I think today, when you're talking about inflation, there's there's a bit of a divide. There's some people who truly believe, yes, we're heading for huge inflation. And there's some who think that, look, whatever happened in 2008 and 2009 just shows you that despite what the governments are going to do, inflation pressures are just not here because it's that whole once bitten, twice shy thing. They just feel that inflation is just the, the, the environment isn't there for inflation. That's very interesting that you pointed out the wealth effect uh, and the difference between the two scenarios. You're absolutely right. I mean, the, with with the amount of pe- people furloughed, even in the UK here, you can certainly see that, yes, every month there is cash coming into their account and every month they can go out and purchase goods. Uh, and to, to, to some extent, you know, they can even save. You can save on a furlough scheme. How crazy is that? And, and then, you know, as this all unravels, of course, you're absolutely right. There will be demands for a limited number of goods, which everybody's going to want at the same time. Uh, and, and of, of course, naturally, we're going to see some, some inflation coming in. Um, I'm, I'm very curious to take this on to another point, which is, can inflation fear drive inflation? You know, talking around at the start of the year around various businesses, family, friends, and and looking at cost expectations for the year ahead, you know, because everybody is talking about this, this inflationary cycle building, a lot of people are looking at their cost base and saying, hang on a second, if I up my cost by 3% and inflation runs at 6%, I'm automatically going to have to increase my cost by what I've lost over the year and also a higher jump for what I expect next next year's cost is going to be. So there is this kind of anticipation to be ahead of this inflationary curve. Can you see this playing out in terms of actually lifting inflation as a whole? So in theory, that can happen, but you need a few conditions to be in the environment for this for that to happen. And one of the key things is confidence in the economy. So if you're a producer and you're wishing to pass on your higher cost of production onto the consumer, for example, because you think that um, inflationary pressures are here, you can anticipate and, um, and make that move now. You have to be really strong in, in say, your customer base or, your, or the demand side of the economy to know that even if I pass that, uh, pass that cost on, um, I will not be impacted by negative sales. So you need to have very strong belief that the economy is heading the right direction and therefore you can really comfortably pass that cost on. If you don't have that, and I think this could be the case, what happened in the previous decade, confidence in the economy was still pretty low. They were not able to pass cost, um, those kind of costs on. And I think because the transmission rate, if you like, the transmission mechanism was quite weak. And um, ultimately, it really does boil down to confidence in the economy. I think right now, yes, a lot of people are talking about a strong rebound. But you mentioned yourself, um, a lot of people have been furloughed, particularly in the leisure industry. Some industries may never come back in the same way we've seen in the past. You know, so the high streets changed um, beyond recognition. Household names have disappeared. How is the airline industry going to behave? How's the tourism, um, hospitality? There's a lot of uncertainty still there. Um, and until we see the labor force become you know, strong employment rates return, I think it's going to be very difficult to make those kind of prejudgments. I guess, in, in to some extent, we've already touched on this a little bit. You know, we're talking about certain elements being much more inflationary than others, given you know what, given the 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 
the demand aspirations of a consumer now compared to the demand aspirations of a consumer in say three, four months time and lockdowns ease will, will shift dramatically. So does the lens by which we are looking at inflation need to be corrected? And you know, in what areas are we, are we seeing already some elements of inflation starting to creep in, do you think? So um, typically inflation, so there's core inflation and there's, um, which is the consumer side and then also the producer inflation. These are indexes which every country will track for their um, respective economies and they will track a basket of goods. So um, household goods are normal expenditure that, and this changes year to year. For example, um, most recently um, it was announced by the Office of National Statistics in the UK that in a typical basket that monitors inflation, we've now had to add hand sanitizer. This is something that's unique to this year of the pandemic. Um, and instead, we've, they've had to remove things like um, an office uh, lunch sandwich because clearly that's disappeared in the typical basket. But um, to your point on what could contribute to typical inflation, what we need to be monitoring, there are a few things that um, we've already been noticing. Um, in, particularly in our world of commodities, we have seen inflationary pressures coming from transportation of goods. So shipping, in particular container freight, that's gone through the roof. Um, and again, that's partly to do with the unique circumstances we're in. So um, clearly during the pandemic, the average person was spending more um, on household goods because they couldn't, for example, spend it on leisure. So suddenly there was a huge demand for goods that needed to be imported via containers. And that was a lot of that was going in um, coming from China, for example. Um, this then led to various dynamics, which ultimately due to lack of um, containers, lack of port infrastructure due to COVID or, or whatnot. Um, and then this whole issue about sending empty containers being, being cheaper than actually coming for um, sending them back with full containers. There's a lot of dynamics at flow. I, I don't want to go into it, but what you ended up with basically was so much demand um, meeting very limited amount of containers. That then led to containers going through the roof, the freight, um, and which essentially means the cost of moving things have gone up. And now we're seeing that moving into the handy size bulk carriers um, and that side of things are also pushing upwards. This definitely does have a um, cost plus push effect on prices. Um, but we've seen so many different sides, you know, commodities generally, we've had from the agricultural side, we've had um, weather events, we've had La Nina, we've had um, dry weather issues in Brazil. Um, that's also led to um, a lack of sufficient grains, um, which have led to higher prices there. Um, in oil, we've seen initially in response to demand, um, poor demand for um, crude oil and energy because of the pandemic. We've seen OPEC, the um, cartel pushing for lower production um, across the oil producing countries to try and match that. And that's led to a big spike in oil prices across the metals, you know, the big recovery in China. Um, they were the first to recover from the pandemic and they've seen huge amounts of pent up demand for not just metals, but also for agricultural feed grains. So you've seen um, China probably is still one of the world's largest consumer of commodities coming in huge force this year. 
this last 12 months, should I say, um, pushing up um, commodities. And commodities are a huge um, input into overall inflation. And um, it is very much being looked at right now in that aspect. Mm. It's, it's very interesting because, you know, we're talking about commodities and inflation in the same breath. But to some extent, it sounds like commodity prices are getting expensive because things are in demand. And it seems almost less so inflationary. I'm sure there are uh, commodities which are kind of left out of this basket. But um, the rally that we've seen in, in the whole commodity complex, though, over the last, I guess, three months, and, and you know, we've, we've seen and we've heard it, that the billions of dollars pouring into, in, into commodities. I mean, we've even seen it in, in, in the coffee markets, and I'm sure in the sugar markets as well. Um, is, 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 are these indexes being bought as an inflationary hedge, or is this the start of this commodity super cycle that, you know, we all hope takes foot, uh, or, or are the two hand in hand, and it's much more kind of interchangeable. And finally, is it even sustainable? Are commodities in a super cycle? This is a topic that seems to be growing, um, particularly since the beginning of the year, when a few um, investment banks like Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan um, suggested that oil prices are in for a long-term bull run. And I think the argument there was that um, you've got this supply side constraint because of ESG and climate change concerns, which means that you know capex on um, production will be impaired long term, and then the, in the meantime the demand side will continue to be pretty strong. Then on top of that, you start to see people thinking that actually that's also going to be happening across metals and agriculture. So metals, I can see the stories, particularly on the supply side where again, ESG factors means mining issues could be a problem. And then um, on the demand side, you know, particularly as we come out of this pandemic, um, initial demand will be very raw material intensive as the economy gets back on their feet. Um, but for agriculture, it's a little bit different. Agricultural prices very much tend to follow supply side factors, which essentially is weather. So, you know, you could, you, there might be a, an, a sort of a climate change environmental factor in the sense that maybe demand for ethanol and biofuels could get grow in prominence and that could provide a demand push. But ultimately, it is always about the supply. And it just happens to be that we've come across a pretty strong La Nina, where you saw um, the Midwest in the US um, suffer inclement weather and lower plantings after seven, eight years of falling prices. I think the farmers have just planted less and less of their grains and oil seeds. Um, and in Brazil and Argentina, you had very dry weather, which also impacted yields there. And then on the demand side, China's come in with um, huge amounts of pent-up demand. You know, they seem to have, re their hog and pig herd seems to have recovered following the African swine flu. Um, so their demand for um, feed grains has been, has trebled almost in a year. And that took the markets by surprise. And we don't know whether it's stockpiling or whether this is the new norm, but certainly that, that's been felt across the agricultural commodities. And then separate to that, softs, sugar and coffee and cocoa um, have also had their own rallies, if you like. Um, but they seem to be all adopting different fundamentals. It doesn't seem to be all 
you can that you can bask, um, bask them all into one subset of supercycle commodities. Um, that said, there are a few commonalities. Number one, the US dollar has been weak. And when you do get super cycles or long-term bull, bullish trends, it's always when you have an inverse relationship with the US dollar. And so the, you know, typically the US dollar falls and we have been seeing that and that's, that's why you're seeing the prices in commodities go up. Secondly, as we've been mentioning before, inflation pressures have been going up or expectations of inflation have been going up. And one of the best hedges you can use to protect yourself from inflation is investing in commodities as an asset class. So a lot of the long-only index funds are increasing their exposure to commodities for this very reason. And as you know, a, a rising tide lifts all boats, and so all commodities have benefited from that uptick. Um, what else? Yes, oil prices tend to, you know, underpin all of that because it's it's not just the biggest um, commodity within the indexes for commodity indexes, but also, I suppose, it underpins the costs. So, for typical agriculture, you know, fertilizers will rely on on um, energy input costs, um, metals for transportation and shipping, all use energy. So, if you do have rising energy costs, clearly that pushes all commodities higher. So you have got a few factors that are causing the whole complex to push higher. But whether we're in a super cycle, I'm not convinced. The reason for that is because you would need the US dollar to remain weak for five to seven years from here on. And I'm not convinced where that's going to happen because if we are talking about inflationary pressures, particularly in the US, um, surely one of the ways the government would tackle that or the Fed would be to raise interest rates. And if, and if the US starts raising interest rates before other central banks do, automatically that would push the US dollar higher. And then once you've got a rising US dollar, that pretty much stops any super cycle bull, tra- bull trend across commodities. Interesting, yeah. You, you, you're right. It, it does seem there is a lot of kind of... Uh, micro bullish balance sheets whether it's you know whatever copper for electric cars or or um you know excessively small off cycle brazil crops in, in coffee there, there certainly seems to be a lot of uh unique uh balance sheets out there at the moment um and it is it is tough to get your head around whether that is just how a super cycle starts you know whether it starts with you know uh, kind of um uh, consolidation or, or a trending of, of individual occurrences that lead into something more. Uh, but it certainly seems, as you pointed out, a rising tide lifting all ships at the moment. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're seeing it in multiple markets, even ones where, for example, you know, out of home consumption of a product. But no, it, it, it certainly seems like that. So the next point on the inflationary uh, story leads us to, well, what do we do as commodity traders? Uh, I mean, can we just see futures curves steepen and we just look at the back wherever it's December 22 future price and think, oh, that's expensive and we just leave it at that? Or, or what else should we be doing? I mean, you know, already when I call um, some of my old friends and contacts in Brazil, I hear that farmers are looking at steepening costs of fertilizer and, and things like this. So already we're starting to see some aspects of this creeping into into our markets what else can we do as commodity traders to 
to uh, uh, to position ourselves best for these sort of environments? Um, so I guess if we are of the view that inflation is um, going to be rising over the coming months or years, it figures that commodity prices will also go up for the reasons we mentioned before. Um, if that's the case, then I clearly... Um, certain amount of hedging, if depending on whether you're a producer or a consumer of commodities, will clearly be um, advisable. Inflation typically means rising interest rates eventually, as a, that's the first government response. Um, so what does that do to your cost of carry? Um, so you need to take, you know, that will clearly affect your spreads, um, and that's something you need to bear in, bear in mind. Ultimately, you're on a structurally unbalanced bullish um, environment. So the commodities you'll be trading with, you need to be aware that it's a, it's an arising trend. And I think that's the best way to approach it. So if you are a consumer, um, it does make sense to be locking some of those prices in now. Whereas if you're a producer, it uh, depends. Again, I think you, you have to be careful, as you mentioned before, you know, it is individual balance sheets are really the name of the day. Um, coffee, just to pick an example, um, we have to very much look at the individual nuances. So what will the Brazilian coffee crop be like? Um, will it be higher or lower than, than what is required to turn the trend around? Um, what, does the, what does the demand do post-pandemic? You know, is it going to be a, sort of like a V-shaped um, uptake in, in, in roaster demand or out of hope consumption of cafes, or does it stay flattish? You know, these are the things you have to think of for your own specific commodities. Um, I, would, I wouldn't like to generalize and say that inflation means as a, commodities are all gonna go up. I genuinely think we need to go back to basics and individual fundamentals um, and trade it using your own S&Ds rather than looking at the big macro picture. That's always good to know in the background, but, um, approaches should be done on a more micro level. Excellent. Thank you for that, Kona. In my head, I was thinking, okay, so buy big storage assets, finance them cheaply, and sell the hell out of spreads and, and go away for seven years. That sounds like a, <laughs> sounds like a, a nice trade, but um, I, I think you're right. I think it is does need to be very much on a on a case-by-case basis. Well, look, thank you very much for your time today. Um, we've massively appreciated it and it's been incredibly insightful and, uh, and I thoroughly look forward to catching up again soon. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot, Max. Thanks, Kuna. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from any Marex entity to the listener. Marex, nor any of its subsidiaries or affiliates, makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Marex, and Marex is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Marex to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Marex entity.